Crusade. You're with your host, Mike Puskas from The Seventh Sense, welcoming you to yet another amazing quintessential record. And this week we are going to feature the rather groundbreaking, generation-defining Electric Ladyland by the one and only James Marshall Hendrix. Where to begin? is always the question I ask myself when it comes to these odysseys into these incredible vinyl masterpieces that frankly just changed the way that I thought about music. Not only thought about music, but became immersive in the experiential nature of music. And there is a particular author, if you like, a chronologist that we're going to be dealing with very shortly, um, who really understands the harmonic balance that existed with our love for certain tonality, certain expression, certain visionary insights that created a harmonious balance between us, the human genome, the human psyche, and the vibrations emitted in the sounds that were coming forth from our, our stereograms. Powerful stuff indeed. So where do we begin? Well, we need to look at a number of things to start with. And the first thing is that we've just had a very, very powerful new moon in Gemini, which kind of unfolded a, a, a need to review a lot of the things that we in the zeitgeist have been predominantly going through while still being semi-regulated, if you like, in this lockdown due to this Fagazi smokescreen pandemic called COVID-19. 
And there's a whole reason behind that conspiratorial, energetic, population-based, and even bioengineered type weapons. But it made the human consciousness, the expanded nature of human consciousness, revert to a more inner plane understanding of the psyche and the self. And to come out the other end in a more liberated fashion also meant that a lot of us went back and revisited some of the music that we really felt very much aligned and tuned into. And I find this stuff absolutely pertinent to these particular discussions regarding the Vinyl Crusade. And in a way, as you can hear in the background, we've got the interstitial music of the Firewalk presented in a medley by Angelo Badalamenti in the Twin Peaks dystopian universe. And Hendrix was asking us at that particular time, back in 68, 69, to firewalk with him, to dare to dream. And that's very powerful stuff. Now, no one knew it at the time, but the new tracks that Hendrix and bassist Noel Redding and drummer Mitch Mitchell had been working on intermittently during February 1968 would be the nucleus of Electric Ladyland, the sprawling double album that would finally see the light of day, October 16th, 1968. It was the final studio album ever recorded by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, and their only one to top the charts on both sides of the Atlantic. Electric Ladyland saw Hendrix moving light years beyond his two previous works, Are You Experienced and Axis, Bold as Love, both of which had been released in the summer of 67. Now, what made this record incredibly different was essentially the way he subconsciously demonstrated his love for planets, for the universe, for the greater cosmology. And he had a particular love and fascination with both Jupiter and Saturn that featured most prominently in the classic The Stars That Play With Laughing Sam's Dice, referring to his position as a galactic traveller within the expanses of the Milky Way. But at the end of the day, when you really, really think about it, there are 19 naked ladies on the cover of Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland, released on Polydor. Pictured inside, Jimi has a flicker of the lip-licking expression that Tom would, like, wear towards the middle of any Tom and Jerry movie when he knows he's going to devour the birds. Jimmy's characteristic stance of omnivorous confidence is misleading. This Hendrix is far away from the electric muddy waters who puts a spell on the little girls with the wild thing. The early Hendrix has affinities with little Richard, the ability to soak every number with himself, to score direct hits on an audience, and an unswerving and unambiguous magnetism. There's no mistaking any Hendrix track, 
It's a successful limitation that is unimaginable. But let me say for the record, and this comes from a very deep personal heart space, that the word that comes to mind in this last major studio album of the Hendrix Experience before things sort of fell apart, and I'll go into a few stories that I know with regard to some of my own career highlights where I got to deal with a few things fairly closely associated to both the Hendrix estate and also a number of people that had the great fortune to work with the great man, things started to very much fall apart after the release of the Eddie Kramer produced and inspired Electric Ladyland where every possible probability in sound production and sound manipulation was experimented on. But the word that comes to mind for me is incendiary. And that's a, that's a word you don't often hear, particularly when it comes to an expletive, a colourful adjective descriptor that predominantly describes the feeling you get when you are immersed in the experience of Electric Ladyland. And like last week when we talked about the, the seminal double album of the spiritual journey of The Who's Tommy, we should also very much start within the framework of the track list and feature a number of highlights from the album along the way. This is, after all, a journey into a, a deeply spiritually inspired Hendrix who didn't die more than three years after the release of this record. So what is it in Hendrix's music that still hooks so many? Is it the melodies, the lyrics, the vocals, the guitar? Is it the diversity of styles, the sheer innovation, or its basic high-energy incendiary nature? Incendiary refers to a fire-like expansiveness. It's like the music is burning. And there were a number of tracks that were particularly good reference to that very, very point. Some of those being none other than House Burning Down, Burning of the Midnight Lamp, and Rainy Day Dream Away. These tracks encapsulated the rather heightened temperature of the record. Things were incendiary in the studio. Things were powered up. They were inflamed. There was an igniting factor going on, underpinning all of the material. And the album predominantly opens and the gods made love. This is essentially... Hendrix's homage to the great deities, to the great gurus, to the great spiritual alchemists, and talks in great detail about how anything is possible. What is it really and truly all about? And The Gods Made Love is definitely a harken back, if you like, to understanding that what is really, really going on is a deeper, 
journey into the depths of the human psyche. And he had a number of great R&B influences and players that predominantly helped him out on this particular record. The tape manipulated and somewhat slowed down drums that opened the album on And The Gods Made Love feature tremendous expansive force on the 2010 remaster. Now on the 2010 remaster, which we're going to feature on tonight's episode of The Vinyl Crusade, we'll talk about the more heightened and more vibrant sonic landscapes and soundscapes that Hendrix was able to draw out of the rather dull, somewhat analog magneto recordings. Other effects on the track take place on a deeper soundstage that creates the illusion of the sound being in front of and behind the speakers, as well as side to side. On the earlier pressing, the effects seem to stop at the speakers. Hendrix strikes against the guitar strings, leading into the rather dulcet and somewhat beautifully inspired nature masterpiece of Have You Ever Been to Electric Ladyland. Hendrix was always drawn to the heightened sensitivity of the divine feminine. The various affectionate names that he gave his various Stratocasters, his female companions, were commensurate with his love of women. He drew so much from their innocence. He drew so much from their strength, their conviction, their need to rise above the misconception that they were, in that time, lesser than man, not as capable as men could be. And it was a powerful exercise into dealing with assigning different sounds that reverberated within the spectrum, the oral spectrum, some in the left ear and some more pronounced in the right ear. Now moving from there, we arrive at the rather enigmatic voodoo child. And for those who didn't know, Hendrix also brought in some great guest musicians, including the Jefferson Airplanes, Jack Cassidy, and Traffic's Steve Winwood both of whom play on Voodoo Child. And for the most part, however, the tracks are by the experience, but there are so many other blues and R&B influences at play. Now, while I was curating this particular show, I was thinking to myself, shall I just feature only the tracks that are predominantly based around, you know, Hendrix exclusively, or should I also feature my own love of the art form? Back in the early 90s, I would say, um, I personally put a group together called the Experience Makers with none other than my brother Andrew on bass and his best friend Troy on drums. And I kind of led a so-called loose rap along with my own unique interpretation of his guitar style 
and the way that his voice would mimic the voodoo child lyric and melody. So recently I decided to revisit the entire Are You Experienced album after being able to get hold of some very virile quality backing tracks. And as a course of that, was very much able to pick out some more of the uh, intricate nuances that were involved with the, uh, with the album. And of course, a number of the, the major feature tracks that for, for the most really featured um, so many different twists and turns to the actual production itself. And I'm looking through the archive at the moment and wondering what it is and why I have something like Voodoo Child as a pinnacle in what I'm doing. And for some reason, pulling it up now, it seems to come out as Little Wing and talk a little bit more about my personal love for Hendrix and what I began to not only understand but rather implement in my own life, my own spiritual journey, my, my walking with the higher, deeper, divine realms, and that was to understand the sound and colour experiment. Hendrix was not much one for being cooped up in auditoriums. He didn't like the idea of feeling as if he was being relegated to selling tickets and then having people who either may or may not have actually understood his music come along and listen and then predominantly judge what he was really all about. Before we get into more detail about what it was like when he was unleashed in nature and played in places like Ula Palakula and Kapi in Arays in Hawaii where he was totally in a natural amphitheater with thousands of people all tuning into the resonant frequency of the earth in these long oms, these invocations, where his true power as an incredibly colorful musician and guitarist was unleashed. You're on Magazine Radio, and this is my particular rendition a voodoo child.
child Mike Pushka style something with a little bit more edge to it something with a little bit more je ne sais quoi if you like now something raw in Hendrix's music evoked something raw in me as though I was entering some forbidden chamber 
a place where darkness could be spun into words and anger could be channeled into rhythm and melody. Teenage rebellion was not only possible when Hendrix laid down the leads for All Along the Watchtower or Gypsy Eyes, it was required. It's a prerequisite. And when the tempo slowed and the vulnerable helter-skelter lyrics came tumbling out, there were those images of angels and birds free-falling into the light. And sandcastles. Maybe it's his palpable passion that keeps him among the world's best-selling recording artists even today. My father was right about Jimi Hendrix. He was, is, and always will be the great Satan. He's the great Satan within all of us. He's our shadow put to poetry. He's our hatred laid bare. He's our fear that life may pass us by before our dreams come true. He's our craving for more, even when more is far too much. And he's our loneliness left to fend for itself with no healing self, no redemptive Hollywood ending. James Marshall Hendrix was much more than a black rebel with an upside-down guitar. He was the great Satan in all of us, the beast nature come full circle, come life, come to haunt our easy assumptions about ourselves, one another, God, social protocol, and the illusion of the Protestant work ethic, the lie that happiness can be bought, earned or sold, Hendrix was the raw in you and me. Jimi Hendrix is a spiritual guide? <laughs> you bet. He's the model of passion for passion's sake. Neglected. Poverty-stricken. Lost. Confused. Hurting. Betrayed. Empty. Sound familiar? It should. Because we've all, to some degree, experienced that level of deeper pain. We've all pulled that victim card many, many times before. And all that pain and passion of the time became the fuel that when touched off by the fire of an innate, awesome talent like Hendrix, gave us permission to trust our gifts, even when no one else does. To trust others, even though we've been slashed and burned by life and love. So yes, Jimi Hendrix as a spiritual guide, my guru. And to say my guru, for me to say my guru, having been through rather distorted perspectives when it comes to that particular modality, is saying a lot. But to get up on stage in front of small intimate audiences and some much larger audiences and even some festival audiences and deliver the magic that was Hendrix was to a greater degree um, a great excursion into the experience of what psychedelia and psychotropic experience was really all about. And I really feel that something that many of us who have an absolute love and passion for music at a deeper level yearn to return to more and more all the time.
You're on Magazine Radio and the Vinyl Crusade, and we're immersing ourselves in the psychedelic and spiritual experience of the Jimi Hendrix double album, Electric Ladyland. And we're going to feature a track now from the album, one of my favourites, because listen to the lyric. This is Hendrix in his no mess, no fuss, I'm going to blow into town, Um, I'm going to be around for a few short hours, take advantage of me, fill your cup up using me as the libation to quench your thirst. This is Crosstown Traffic from Electric Ladyland and the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Crosstown Traffic off Electric Ladyland. You're on Magazine Radio and the Vinyl Crusade with your host, Mike Puskas. And we'll continue looking at a more detailed, at a more spiritual outlook when it comes to understanding the power of Electric Ladyland. While the stomping of Crosstown Traffic and the smouldering psych pop of burning of the midnight lamp wouldn't have sounded particularly out of place on either of the previous records, Are You Experienced and Axis Bold as Love, Electric Land was full of bold, new, sonic colours, flavours and adventures. And believe me when I tell you from first-hand experience, the temperature was at an all-time high. Including And the Gods Made Love, a sound painting 
featuring very speeded drums. Who was doing that? Who was taking that flam and that somewhat sort of phased out uh, latency within the, the drum groove and reversing its polarity out? That's just mind-blowing technologically advanced thinking. Distorted vocals and backward cymbals. The lilting Curtis Mayfield influenced Lullaby. Have you ever been to Electric Ladyland? And the angry protest of House Burning Down. Voodoo Child, the 15-minute live blues jam with Steve Winwood and the Jefferson Airplane's Jack Cassidy. The slinky soul jazz groove of Rainy Day Dream Away. And the epic psychedelic apocalypse of 1983's A Merman I Should Turn to Be. I mean, I, I could talk in hushed tones about that track alone for the entire gamut of the show. And I'm going to play it. It's a long bugger, but there are so many beautiful dynamic filters raised throughout the arrangement, which is frankly, a, 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 a psychedelic masterpiece. And then you've got both Jack Cassidy again, you know, and Steve Winwood featuring on the soul jazz groove of Rainy Day Dream Away, the epic psychedelic apocalypse that culminates in the major sort of hit annals of history being the heavy voodoo child slight return and the radical reworking of the Bob Dylan classic all along the Watchtower. But while many Hendrix fans today regard Electric Ladyland as his true masterpiece, its birth was a profoundly difficult one. Recording sessions for the album mostly split between London's Olympic Studios and New York's record plant were regularly interrupted by touring commitments. Well, let me just jump in there and say that there is an eerie kind of ghostly emotional interplay taking place when you're in the record plant in New York. So many incredible, thought-provoking, vision-inspired major albums have been penned, recorded and produced there. And then when you actually go to Olympic Studios in London on the uh, King's Row, there's a kind of a, a sense of pomp and ceremony there. But then when you actually end up on... I think it's, I'm going to take a guess here, it's been a while, I think it was either 8th Street or 9th Street, Lower Manhattan, New York, to actually go to Electric Ladyland Studios, where the ghost and the soul of Hendrix still haunts it, and I happened to be there with um, Felly, Felly and his hip-hop crew were doing a documentary, and uh, I, I was kind of asked to go in and do a little bit of green room work at Electric Ladyland Studios, which was amazing. And of course, took some photos 
on Hollywood Boulevard, of course, um, on the Jimi Hendrix Star of Fame on Hollywood Boulevard, and also the plaque and the bustier of Hendrix out front of his famous recording studio in Manhattan. Hendrix found himself frequently frustrated by trying to make the music on tape match the sounds in his head. While his drive for perfectionism and his endless fascination with sonic experimentation wound up alienating some of his most trusted colleagues. And even in its completed state, Electric Ladyland didn't end up sounding or looking quite like Hendrix had envisioned. On November the 9th, Sony Legacy will offer additional insight into the multi-layered and hued work with the release of a massive 50th anniversary box set that includes additional outtakes, demos, a new 5.1 surround sound mix by Electric Ladyland engineer Eddie Kramer and the 1987 documentary At Last, The Beginning the making of Electric Ladyland. Now, I cannot tell you how excited I am to know that that's coming out in a few short months from now. I'll be one of the first people standing in line to procure my own personal version of that edition of that 50th anniversary box set. But in honour of the album's 50th anniversary, here are 10 things you might not know about Electric Ladyland. Number one. Whitney Houston's mum sang backing vocals on Burning of the Midnight Lamp. So what I think I'll do is, as I'm talking about each particular track or each particular anomaly that isn't necessarily public fodder, I'm going to play a snippet of each particular track. So we'll begin by burning of the midnight lamp and kind of getting into a, a, a little bit of its mysticism and its magic. Burning of the Midnight Lamp was tracked at New York's Mayfair Studios on July 6th and 7th, 1967, just three weeks after the experience's, wait for it, incendiary performance at the Monterey Pop Festival. Though written during the sessions for Axis Boulder's Love, it hadn't been recorded in time to make the cut for that album. Little kind of a segue, I had a couple of people contact me through Faceit, through social media saying 
you know, I, I, we love the way that we're, we're learning things about a record that we've, we've fallen in love with, all these albums that we've fallen in love with so many years before. And we're wondering whether or not you can also maybe look at putting them in context to major events uh, in the music calendar. And of course, the Monterey Pop Festival. And if you haven't seen the Monterey Pop Festival documentary, um, this is Monterey, then I certainly urge you to do so. It was, without a doubt, the incendiary performance of Hendrix, where both Pete Townsend from The Who and Hendrix nearly came to blows backstage because neither wanted to follow the other. You see, back then, before the... It was egoic, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Everything was very much founded on ego back then, you know, the whole kind of star-spangled you know, a banner that was, you know, rock stardom. Um, and as the uh, Lester Banks, the infamous writer for Rolling Stone magazine, used to say that the angelic choirs and uh, pompous arts protagonists that he used to write about of understanding what the so-called psyche of a rock star was, but back then, to follow another artist was kind of considered to be lowly and undeserving, whereas today, it's all about the headline act. We pay the money to go to the, to the concert or to go to the festival or the roadshow to see the headline act. Back in 68 and 69, it was the other way around. So Pete Sound said, I'm not going to follow Hendrix. And Hendrix said that he didn't want to follow The Who. Well, they drew straws and The Who won and they went on and absolutely blitzed it. So Hendrix decided to pull all the stops out and literally incinerate his 1967 L-Series Stratocaster. Just trying to get that date right. 67? 67, yeah. 1967 <laughs> Fender Stratocaster L-Series on fire and incinerated on stage and then proceed to smash it to bits while it was on fire. So very powerful. So yes, I will start looking at the, what I call those groundbreaking moments like Monterey, like Woodstock, like the, the Fillmore East, the Isle of Wight. Uh, there's so many that come to mind and I will work them into different shows to demonstrate where they may have been launched. I know that um, uh, it might have been, uh, oh, was it the Holy Majesties or Exile on Main Street? One of the Stones album was specifically launched at a particular um, festival. But anyway, we'll do the Stones, but we're not ready to, to bring that to light quite yet. Haven't decided which one of their three quintessential records I want to feature on the on the Vinyl Crusade. Well, let's get back to, to Hendrix. Let's talk about the highlight package, because yes, there was indeed a highlight package in the production of Making Electric Ladyland. The burning sessions marked the first time that Hendrix worked with engineer Gary Kelgren, and the two hit it off beautifully. 
and Kelgren would go on to play a major role in the making of Electric Ladyland, along with Eddie Kramer. When Hendrix and producer Chaz Chandler decided that the song needed female backing vocals, Kelgren's wife Marta hired the Sweet Inspirations, an in-demand vocal quartet led by Emily Sissy Houston, whose young daughter Whitney, just three years old at the time, would go on to become an immensely successful singer in her own right. And the rest is history. A pox on Bobby Brown, if you don't mind me saying, for leading the rather Christian-inspired and angelic voice of the, well, the angelic Whitney Houston herself down a path of drugs and inequity. Um, perhaps that union may have spared her life. Though Hendrix's psychedelic music seemed a little unusual to Houston and her cohorts, who had already done sessions for the likes of Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Solomon Burke and Van Morrison, they were more than up for the challenge. But they all thought it was quite strange, Chandler recalled in at last the beginning, the making of Electric Ladyland. Midnight Lamp sort of threw them a bit, but they liked it and they did a really great job. So let's look at a couple of the burning tracks now. There's a few, and I think it would be safe to say that Still Raining, Still Dreaming, which is a prequel that literally morphs into and feeds into House Burning Down that I will feature in its entirety, but let's have a little taste of Still Raining, Still Dreaming.
Yeah, I tried to morph those two tracks together, the uh, Still Raining, Still Dreaming, into the Rainy Day, Dream Away, but it didn't quite work out, so we had to have a little bit of Twin Peaks in the middle there. But I think that you, you get the general idea that there was a very obvious and a, and a rather powerful kind of synergy very much taking place during that particular track. So moving forward on the album, Hendrix played a homemade kazoo on Crosstown Traffic. Now the great incendiary asset that is featured very strongly on this album is of course the famous Jim Dunlop crybaby wah-wah pedal. The wah-wah pedal is so great because it doesn't have any notes, Hendrix told Rolling Stone in 68. Waxing rhapsodic about the then new invention. It was brand spanking new and it literally kind of morphed a human vocal tone by creating a somewhat fibulating and or um, uh, keyboardist use it. Uh, there's an arpeggiator in keyboards and synthesizers. This arpeggiated the sound, expanded and contracted the sound. And as a guitar player, I love using it. It's an incredibly emotional and expressive um, asset or pedal to have in the, uh, in the musical arsenal more and more, which I think is just absolutely awesome. Now, as a course of that, he felt that this was one of his greatest vocal expressions on the wah-wah and one of his favourite musical tools. But while Hendrix loved to experiment with the sonic possibilities of new guitar gear, he also wasn't afraid to go to the DIY route when the occasion called for it. Now, on All Along the Watchtower, just to digress and we will get into that in more detail, he actually used a cigarette lighter as a guitar slide. And to achieve the right buzzing effect on cross-sound traffic, he doubled the guitar line by blowing through a kazoo constructed from a comb and some cellophane. I mean, this is what it's all about. Innovation through the power of music. And done really tastefully. And almost in a kind of an unassuming sort of at an unassuming level where you wouldn't know that these artificial additives were even in play when it comes to listening to the album seamlessly from start to finish. He was doing crosstown traffic and couldn't seem to get the sound that he was trying to express across. Hendrix's friend and confidant, Velvet Turner, explained in, at last, the beginning, the making of Electric Ladyland. Do you have a comb on you, man? Give me a comb. Somebody get me some cellophane. If you take a comb and put cellophane across it and blow through it, it gives a kazoo sound. So the guitar solo on Crosstown Traffic, the guitar is laced and doubled by the sound of a kazoo which is then panned left to right in a sort of a sonic type of soundscape. Like waves in an ocean, if you pick up a shell, you can hear the different panning of the wave as it gets closer and closer to the shore 
by listening to the tonality coming back from the shell. The shell acts as a somewhat amplified speaker of the undulating effect that's taking place within it. So it's laced by the sound of a kazoo, and that's Jimmy with this particular comb, which I just thought was amazingly brave for someone to do in the moment. Jimmy would reach out and grab anything he possibly could to get his hands on if he thought it could produce the desired sound for him. He was all about getting it right. The sound was everything. And getting the sound right on Electric Ladyland, knowing that it was going to be a double album. And think about the double albums that were coming out at the time. This is a precursor to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This is a precursor to, to Pet Sounds. This is a precursor to Amagama by Pink Floyd. These are all quintessential records in their own right, and they took great risks in the way that they expressed their spiritual beingness and the core of their truth through the intricate weaving of the sonic landscapes and soundscapes throughout the arrangements on the album. Let's talk about All Along the Watchtower. Hendrix often encouraged other musicians to join in on his recording sessions. And Electric Ladyland featured several guest contributors, including Al Cooper, Buddy Miles, and three members of Traffic. He loved Traffic because of their somewhat psychedelic journeys into the subconscious recesses of the human psyche. What lay beneath the surface? What was kind of crawling underneath the surface tension of, of, of society and cultural influence at the time? But when a certain member of the Rolling Stones showed up at Olympic Studios during the recording of All Along the Watchtower, his enthusiastic attempts to add a piano to the track were quickly foiled by his level of inebriation. That's right, none other than Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones stumbled by the session, decided to help out and play some piano while being literally pissed off his gourd. Eddie Kramer recalled in at last the beginning the making of Electric Ladyland. You can tell which uh, particular product is sponsoring this show. I think he valiantly tried for a couple of takes, but it was abandoned, and they went back to cutting the basic track without him. Not wanting to hurt his friend's feelings, Hendrix moved Jones over to percussion. The rattling that punctuates the song's intro is the sound of Jones hitting a vibra slap. Who uses a vibra slap today? Who uses some of these somewhat incredibly organic analog instruments that produce these really warm tones? They seem to have been lost in the obscurity of the way that music has evolved back into a more um, somewhat technologically fueled age. Bob Dylan thought Hendrix's version of Watchtower was an improvement on his original. Now that's a lot coming from Bobby. Hendrix stated to an enthused 
Lester Bangs in Rolling Stone in 69. I love Dylan. I only met him once, about three years ago, back at the Kettle of Fish, a folk rock era hangout in New York, similar to, uh, is it Doug? Doug? Doug's Troubadour, anyway, Doug somebody, Doug Springfield's Troubadour um, in Santa Monica in LA. That was before I went to England, and I think both of us were pretty drunk at the time, so he probably really doesn't remember it. Now, while Hendrix performed several Dylan covers, particularly in his live shows, before he, he actually died, including Like a Rolling Stone, one of the finest versions of the song, and I've heard at least a dozen covers, the birds do a version, the band do a version, um, Can You Please Crawl Out of Your Window, which is a really good rendition, and the classic Drifter's Escape. His masterful overhaul of All Along the Watchtower was his ultimate tribute to the singer-songwriter. Dylan himself has praised the Electric Ladyland version on several occasions, even incorporating Hendrix's arrangement of the song into his live performances. Again, that's a lot for Bob, because Bob thought he was pretty hot shit. And he really was. He was actually uh, a rather unassuming poet for a new generation, a voice of a generation, not an easy moniker to be able to hold space in, in so many ways, but nonetheless powerful and virile and worthy of the, the accolades that were bestowed. And those accolades were certainly coming thick and fast as people began to realise that there was more going on in the cryptic Hendrick's influence on the on the Dylan classic. Bob Bob Dylan was was heard to say on several occasions, "It overwhelmed me really." He told the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel in 1995, when asked about Hendrix's take on the song. He had such talent; he could find things inside a song and vigorously develop them. He found things that other people wouldn't think of finding in there. He probably improved upon it by the spaces he was using. I took license with the song from his version, actually, and I continue to do it to this day. So let's take a break, immerse ourselves in thinking back to 1969, thinking back to when Bob Dylan first penned this particular track in 67 and how Hendrix came along and pretty much turned it on its head and gave it all the pomp and ceremony of an absolutely expanded classic. You're on Magazine Radio, The Vinyl Crusade, and this is All in the Watchtower of Electric Ladyland. Some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Business man there 
Drink my wine, plum and dig my earth. None will level on the mine. Nobody of it is worth. Electric Ladyland album, the always Dylan-esque inspired classic track with twists and turns, metamorphosis from chrysalis to cocoon, cocoon to butterfly. You're on Magazine Radio, the Vinyl Crusade with your host Mike Puskas and we're getting into the deeper detail and now I feel we'll dip into the esoteric in an effort to try to understand Hendrix's more extra interdimensional and 
extra dimensional capacity to transcend the limitations of his earthly realm and travel into higher spiritual planes of existence. To understand what we mean by interplanetary travel, we need to look at a few classic quotes by Hendrix himself. I never wanted to go to the moon too much. I always wanted to go to Venus or Saturn, some place that could show me some kind of wild scenery, says Hendrix, in a new film recently made about him. He's lost interest in the news, in this time dimension, in this linear Earth plane. Now he's put himself in a capsule, a capsule that transcends time and space and transcends the limitations created by the ego and the limited thinking and or belief structures of humanity as a rather predictable and defined form. Electric Ladyland is the diary of a traveller far out in space. Now diaries have a particular honesty. Their writer is concerned to tell himself what's on his mind rather than to give a performance or to master an idea with its own objective logic. An Electric Ladyland has the boredom of a diary. The tape loof effects of And the Gods Made Love are too easy, using the reactions of a stupid audience to the in-concert capture of Voodoo Child, presumably done to demonstrate Hendrix's disinterest after reaction is merely exasperating. So Hendrix is getting to a particular point as he's making this album where He's had a gutful of feeling so rigid. He's had a gutful of control. And for a long time there, in the early part of his career, Mike Jeffries and Chaz Chandler played very powerful, controlling parts in Hendrix's evolution. And for a long time there, he was content enough to go along with it. Not anymore. This diary of a galactic traveller far out in space was all about making the most of any given moment. Hendrix was a man of the moment. He saw something always available that he could immerse himself in. If the opportunity to get together with musicians at the scene, one of his favourite after hours New York clubs in the Greenwich Village, then whoever was there, it didn't matter whether they were prolific, famous, unknown, he would sit in with them and beckon to expand whatever musical prowess was potentially laying in the wings to be born and birthed on the stage. But he had become bored. He had become rather disinterested in the predictable. And it was during the course of making Electric Ladyland that Chaz Chandler pretty much got fed up with Jimmy's perfectionism, wanting to do take after take after take, 
in order to get the panning assignment right or in order to get the sonic landscape sitting just at the right vibration and the right frequency that he quit. And so Hendrix not only got a chance to write this album, but also to record and produce the album exactly the way he always heard it in his head. And this is the reason why I think there is this incredible sense of liberated freedom that is so expressive on a number of the tracks, particularly featured. And to be able to kind of transmit the signals and the transmissions, I should say, in order to express the transmissions of the different tonalities uh, evident in the tracks, we need to just look at the colour, the mood and the temperature of the music featured in any given moment. So here's a medley of a number of tracks that really demonstrates Hendrix's more expansive freedom of not being relegated to a sort of a, a rigid outlook of play it once, it sounds great, that's enough, let's, let's print it. He wanted to make sure that if it could be more expansive by bringing in a different instrument or a unique player of sorts, then so be it. Let's do exactly that. This is Gypsy Eyes from Electric Ladyland. newfound freedom, Noel Redding, who also considered him to be a worthy songwriter, had approached Hendrix on different occasions to say, hey man, you know, I got some ideas as well, and seeing this record is as diverse as it is, I've got to bring a few ideas and perhaps pen a cut where I feel that all my loyalty and my hard work to the group over the years should be rewarded, and that's exactly what happened when it came to his particular cut on the album, Little Miss Strange, and we'll have a listen to some of that right now. Little 
that was the vocal of Noel Redding, the bass player in the experience. And don't forget that at the same time, he never neglected the importance of his blues roots and his particular love of R&B and the classic Muddy Waters and Sonny Boy Williams and, of course, John Lee Hooker and Robert Johnson and the like. And the classic Curtis Mayfield track, Come On, was a perfect example of exactly that. Just don't know what's in my heart and why I love you so. I love you, baby, like a minor love gold. I'm all sure let the good time go. Hey. so many different colours, moods, temperatures taking place as this eclectic record came more and more together over the many, many different sessions that were penned during the course of 1968. Electric Ladyland is probably best described as his greatest venture into self-consciousness. And yet many who reviewed the record and or didn't quite get it saw that self-consciousness as to be his only flaw. So when he cooks other people's material in an ingredient filled with spice, familiarity, experimentation, firewalking, unambiguous magnetism, Hendrix creates a successful formula that cannot belly any imitation. In fact, any imitation would be considered unimaginable. Let's talk about Voodoo Child. Voodoo Child's slight return was recorded off the cuff while the band was being filmed for a TV documentary. And that was a little bit tough for Hendrix because Hendrix felt somewhat hemmed in by the experience. The day after Voodoo Child was recorded, Hendrix returned to the studio with Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell to be filmed for an ABC TV documentary. Though the musicians were supposed to only pretend that they were recording, Hendrix seized the moment to teach his bandmates a new song. And three takes later, with the tapes rolling, Voodoo Child's slight return, the more power ballad, if you like, was born. We learned that song in the studio, Redding told author John McDermott. They had the cameras rolling on us while we played it. We did that about three times because they wanted to film us in the studio to make us make it look like you're recording it, boys. Hendrix hated that and told John Banks, the producer, if you don't get it in the first take, we're not redoing it for you. 
So let's just play this in E. Now a one, a two, a three, and bang, crescendo. It went off. It was such a powerful incendiary performance that the producers of the show were left gobsmacked and dumbfounded. As it turned out, the studio footage was never really used by the ABC and has since been sadly lost. But Voodoo Child's slight return remains one of the heaviest and most potent tracks ever recorded by Hendrix. Experienced bassist Noel Redding was also extremely unhappy about the festivities surrounding the sessions and the fact that Hendrix would go out, jam all night at the scene and at the Fillmore with whatever groups were touring and then return to the record plant to meet up with Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell and pick up where they left off, but in a rather inebriated and somewhat LSD'd tripped out state. The fact that Hendrix, in his quest to get everything exactly like he heard it in his head, he decided to play bass on many of the album's tracks, thus leaving Redding with little to do. So Hendrix was not only in the zone, but he began the whole kind of control freak approach where he sort of took over the roles of his seminal players. That's tough on anyone, and I've had some experience with regard to that in studios where certain individuals have said, well, look, I, I hear it this way. I don't think you're playing it the way I want it to be. So give me the guitar and I'll play it. Kind of a, a slap in the face in, in more ways than one. So Hendrix had decided to play bass on many of the album's tracks. And I took it out on Jimmy Redding Road in his autobiography, Are You Experienced? letting him know that I thought of the scene, what I thought of the people and the hanger honors and the, the tryhards and the wannabes, that he was actually somewhat wantingly building around himself. There were just tons of people in the studio. You couldn't even move. It was a party, not a session. He just said, relax, man. I'd been relaxing for months. So I relaxed my way right out of the place not caring if I ever saw him again. Redding would eventually return to the sessions after his little boo-hoo bit sessions, even singing the lead on Little Miss Strange, which we heard a little bit before, a track that he penned that Hendrix dug enough to include on the album. But Chandler, his manager of the last seven-odd years, was definitely gone for good. Number eight for the so-called things you might not know about Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. Hendrix's UK label neglected to inform him that they were putting naked women on the album's cover. <laughs> I don't think Hendrix cared terribly much, but he simply would have liked to have been informed. In addition to being a musical perfectionist, Hendrix had very specific visual ideas for Electric Ladyland. And of course, photographer Linda Eastman, who would then later marry Paul McCartney the following year, 
had taken a photo of the Jimi Hendrix experience hanging out with some children on Jose de Creef's Alice in Wonderland sculpture in New York Central Park. I've got to tell you, I've had some really, really great experiences with some lovely people um, in that particular part of New York, New York Central Park, where the Alice in Wonderland sculpture is, and Shorty Brown, who I was getting a gig for, um, of course she came from Today FM, um, one of the Black Thunder girls that started with um, uh, Jackie O, who of course later on went on to do some big things, um, with Kyle, I can't remember, uh, uh, Kyle Sandylands, that's right, of Today FM. But anyway, she was in New York, and we were trying to get her a presenter gig with MTV, um, and uh, so we went and shot some some publicity photos of her pretty much hanging around the neck of Alice at the sculpture. So it was a really powerful image that was very much synonymous with New York folk. They were very kind of, I suppose, what would you say? It's like wallpaper. For them, it was like wallpaper. It was sort of set in stone as part of their, the typical Manhattan, New York culture. And of course, that's always a good thing too, because then there's that certain sense of loyalty within the framework of the culture. And music within that loyalty framework was all important. So to have things that were grounded in something that was familiar that all New Yorkers would identify with definitely gave people a marketing plus or at least a, a leg up. Hendrix thought it would be perfect for the cover of the album. Please use the colour picture with us and the kids on the statue for front or back cover, outside cover. He instructed Reprise Records, his US label. For whatever reason, Reprise opted instead to use a solarised Carl Ferris photo from Hendrix's 1967 performance at London Seville Theatre. While track records, Hendrix's UK label, took a more provocative and controversial track by using, tack I should say, by using a Dave Montgomery photo of 19 nude women. I prefer the visceral nature of the naked women as opposed to the somewhat eclectic and cliche picture of the Alice in Wonderland statue. According to December 7th, 1968, in a news article in Rolling Stone, the track release of the album met resistance and censorship in many record shops and outlying provinces in the British Isles, while London wholesalers were only selling the record with a nudity-obscuring brown wrapper. This is something that Alice Cooper also did with Schools Out. Originally, the Schools Out album, and now that I think about it, it's probably a very good one to think about doing a show on the Vinyl Crusade about because the original concept was to take the red raspberry vinyl version of the album and cover it in a pair of lacy wild strawberry panties. But the record company was met with such censorship and opposition from the... Um, Christian 
factions and the nuns and priests and, and whatnot that they ended up putting the vinyl record with the panties inside the desk, which you could actually fold out um, like a real school desk that you'd scribbled all over and left your moniker and all your different loves and hates and whatnot scribbled in blue or black plant pen into the actual woodwork. So that's not dissimilar to what they tried to do with Hendrix's Electric Ladyland with all the nude women on the front. I didn't know a thing about the English sleeve, he told Melanie Maker in November 68. Still, you know me, I dug it anyway. Except I think it's sad the way the photographer made the girls look ugly. Some of them are nice looking chicks. But the photographer distorted the photograph with a fisheye lens or something, and that's mean. It made the girls look bad, but that's not my fault. So here we have another case of people taking artistic license with Hendrix's rather provocative approach to presenting music. And there were a number of bootlegs of Electric Ladyland, and one such featured a classic track of the, uh, I'm going to say it's 19, I think it's 1965 or 1966, um, bluesman cover of Killing Floor, which the Stones went on to do a version and um, uh, Led Zeppelin went on to do a version and whatever. And so the experience makers at the Parlegat Festival in 1987 also decided to do a version. So you're on Magazine Radio. Here's an original live recording at 1987's Parlegap by Melbourne Group. The experience makers and killing floor live.
melted up all those inside. Everybody's on fire, but I'm snowing in a cold That was a rendition of Long Hot Summer Night from the Hendrix Experience on the Electric Ladyland album. And before that, yours truly in the Experience Makers and the 66 classic Killing Floor by the Experience Makers. You're on Magazine Radio with your host, Mike Puskas, on the Vinyl Crusade. And we're getting towards the end of this rather detailed spiritual excursion into the mindset, the mental construct of Hendrix's approach to making his quintessential classic, Electric Ladyland. Hendrix was unhappy with the way the finished album sounded. I mean, is that even remotely possible? But Hendrix was a perfectionist. While Hendrix spent long hours in the studio recording Electric Ladyland, running up a $60,000 bill back in 68 was a pretty extensive recording bill, production bill, at the record plant and $10,000 additional at Olympic in London or more than half a million dollars in 2018 terms. With his round-the-clock work, he unfortunately had no such luxury when it came to the final mix. Preassured by reprise and pressured by reprise. Now, don't you love that? He was preassured that, hey, man, just trust us, everything's going to be all right. But in the same sentence and the same breath, pressured by reprise for a finished product, he was forced to mix the record while out on tour with the experience. Now, that's not the mindset or the headspace you want to be in when you want to create a milestone with your head being sort of filled with physical obligations each day. It's very hard to concentrate on both, he lamented to Hullabaloo magazine shortly after the album's release. So some of the mix came out muddy. Not exactly muddy, but very much with too much bass. We mixed it and produced it and all that mess. But when it came time for them to press it, quite naturally they screwed it up because they didn't know what we wanted. There's a 3D sound being used out on there but you can't even appreciate it because they didn't know how to cut it properly. They thought it was out of phase. Now, this is the reason why you'll find that this particular album, especially the one that came out in October of 1970, um, isn't considered to be <coughs> sonically, I suppose, as exciting as some of his other records earlier and later because of the out-of-face sound. It, it is rather dull, and it sounds as if Jimmy's vocals in a lot of places is actually produced and sounding flat. But the remasters that took place in the mid-'80s and again in 90 
I think I said it was 1995, and now this new 50th anniversary coming out, November of, let's have a quick look again, to be absolutely certain, where are we? This was pretty much, um, you know, that, that, that 50th anniversary came out in 2018, two years ago, which included the outtakes demos and a new 5.1 surround sound mix of Electric Ladyland, which is awesome. So now we get to a particular point where, as you stated, it's very hard to concentrate on both. That is mixing a record and being out playing live on tour. And they kind of mucked it all up because they actually thought that the record was out of phase. But Rolling Stone gave the album a rather mixed review upon its release. Electric Ladyland sounded like nothing else when it was released in October 1968. So it's not entirely surprising that many contemporary reviewers were unable to fully get their heads and ears around its 75 minutes of sheer awesomeness. Tony Glover, rock, <coughs> Tony Glover writing about the album for Rolling Stone gave Electric Ladyland a decidedly mixed review. One which praised the album's more straight-ahead blues excursions as well as All Along the Watchtower but he seemed unsure about its heavier moments and specifically bemoaned the way Hendrix's wailing guitar upset the beautiful undersea mood of 1983. My first reaction was, why did he have to do that? Glover wrote. Then I thought that he created a beautiful thing but lost faith in it and so destroyed it before anybody else could, in several ways a major bummer. 35 years later, however, the album achieved its rightful due in Rolling Stone, landing at number 55 on the magazine list. Top albums. So overall, it was a mixed experience, not only for the musicians, but for the producers for the label, and to a degree, some of the fans that also came at the record from a, a rather more mixed perspective. But when you hear these two final tracks that I want to feature, not in their entirety, because they are lengthy tracks and we're already gracing our hour and a half of getting into the rhetoric and the dialogue of this particular record, you cannot help but see and feel and emotionally experience the power of the songwriting, the arrangements, the sonic dynamic range that exists within the biodiverse framework of this incredible album. And no more is that more apparent, in my opinion, than the 1983 A Mermaid I Should Turn. You're on Magazine Radio, The Vinyl Crusade, and this is A Mermaid I Should Turn. 
To salute the last moment of the Andrew A machine is Dennis work played his part well Without a scratch on a bottle that may bid it farewell Starfish and giant films greet us with a smile Before our heads go under we take a last look Killing Noah Walk the other
that's a true psychedelic masterpiece. It could just, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And that's why the 50th anniversary of the album, along with the live concert at the Hollywood Bowl, and at last, the beginning, the making of the Electric Ladyland documentary, the box set is absolutely off the charts and uh, an absolute must for all Jimi Hendrix mega fans. Well, I hope you enjoyed this particular episode on Vinyl Crusade, um, looking at the Jimi Hendrix double vinyl album, Electric Ladyland. We've immersed ourselves in a rather powerful, spiritual and cathartic experience. We've talked planetary intervention. We've talked interdimensionality. We've talked the visceral nature of cultural crossover. We've looked at icons in the music world. We've looked at evolutionary new studio techniques for bringing out the visionary nature of a true genius. We've discovered some very powerful sounds and tonality that lift the vibration of not only the culture, but those that are tuning in to that cultural indifference for the very first time. And I'm really excited about the prospect of bringing these sorts of records to the attention of the listeners here on Magazine Radio. And I want to thank you all for tuning in. Don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us, go to magazine.today. It's our radio, TV, lifestyle blog hub. You can ask us questions, look for input, become contributors, ask to semi or curate a show. There's all manner of interactive interaction and interactivity available at magazine.today. So don't forget, that's the go-to destination. Next week, it's a toss-up. I'm thinking Led Zeppelin 2, maybe even a crossover of Led Zeppelin 1 and Led Zeppelin 2, or Satanic Majesties by the Rolling Stones. Perhaps I'll put a, uh, a poll or a, a question up on the social media Facebook page and you guys can let me know what you know about those particular records and which really should become part of our top 10. Looking back, we've had Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. We've had The Who's double album Tommy and now we've added Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. I'm going to leave you tonight with what I still consider today to be my favourite track, the track that jumps out. You talk about incendiary guitar performance. From a guitarist's perspective, I don't think you get anything more intense, more firewalking, more evolutionary, and certainly more incendiary than House Burning Down. Thanks for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your weekend coming up. And I look forward to spending some more time with you once again on the Vinyl Crusade. This is Mike Puskas signing off. Peace. We're out of here. House Burning Down.
the Jimi Hendrix Experience. So we paint red in the sky. I say the truth is straight ahead. So don't 